Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Here we are on the first uh, Sunday of our Christmas series. So I want to say an official Merry Christmas. All right, and I've been fighting a cold the last couple days. It's not COVID, just a cold, all right? Um, just want to make that clear. And so, uh, but I just pray my, my voice holds out uh, for the entire time together this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And over the next few weeks, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, some uh, Christmas-themed stories in God's Word together. And what we're going to do is we're going to see we're going to see how people that a lot of the characters we're familiar with, like Mary, Joseph, the wise men, uh, in these birth narratives that we're going to walk through, uh, we're going to see how they took information that they had about uh, the Bible for them, which was the Old Testament, and with what they were experiencing, it, with their encounters with God in the present in their life, and how they were able to connect the dots. They were to connect the dots and experience God's work in and through their lives. And so they're going to walk through these stories and see how they connected the dots at Christmas. But our goal is not to just watch and look at it from a distance as to how God was working in their life and how they were connecting the dots. Uh, We want to see the God who's working in their story as a God who is actively working right now in the world and who will work in our story as we connect the dots at Christmas. That's why we're calling this series uh, Connecting the Dots at Christmas. This may be the first Christmas where the dots connect. This may be the first Christmas where you really understand what we're celebrating. And uh, this may be another Christmas for you where you, as we say, understand the reason for the season. And if that's you, what my prayer is, is that uh, this series will, in a fresh way, encourage you to live more for the glory of the King who came. So uh, last week, Brandon did a great job wrapping up our Old Testament series and brought us right into the New Testament and uh, took us to the the final prophet who is John the Baptist. And he's there pointing to Jesus doing what all of the Old Testament does. And that's a perfect lead in to where I want to take us this morning, because you may not realize this, but there's actually two miraculous births in the Christmas story. It all begins with the birth of that prophet, John the Baptist. And so we're going to begin with maybe a a less familiar story in Luke chapter 1, but an important story that I believe as we walk through it and apply it to our lives, hopefully encourage you to walk with Jesus in a strong way. So stand with your Bibles open. I'll begin to read in verse 11, then we'll go back and walk through this beginning at verse 5. And then appeared to him Zechariah, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him talking about Jesus, and the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom and the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am old, I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 
And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had sent a vision, seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And these days, after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. For five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Would you have a seat as I pray? Father, I thank you so much for an opportunity to come together this morning and to learn from your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would put into my mouth your words. I pray that you protect this room, these people from this man's opinion, but that your truth would be made known and be made clear, and that your Holy Spirit would take your word and would plant it in our hearts, that we would connect the dots and understand your truth and understand uh, these scriptures of old that are timeless and everlasting and how they apply to our life in every single moment in the present moving into the future. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to put all this together and apply it to our lives in a way that makes us more conformed to the image of your son. We ask these things in his name, Jesus. Amen. Luke opens uh, this birth narrative there in verse 5 in a way that kind of opens the chapter, opens the book, uh, to make sure we understand that this is meant to be read as history. He's a historian. So he gives us this setting there in verse 5. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea. King Herod, now was King Herod good or bad? He was bad, right? A puppet king of the Roman Empire ruling uh, over Israel. And these were dark days, all right? Israel's gone, it come a long way in, in the wrong direction from the days a thousand years prior when God's hand was on the nation, King David was ruling, and now a thousand years later, here they are under the puppet king of the Roman Empire named Herod the Great, who wasn't a great man, who was an evil man. Um, and they become nothing more than a speed bump for world powers to bump over to take over the world. And you can imagine how many people in Israel have wondered along the way, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? Last word they heard from God was through the prophet Malachi 400 years before. Do you know how long ago 400 years is? I just Googled that this week. 400 years ago, 1621. You know what came up? The first Thanksgiving between the pilgrims and the Wampanoag Indians uh, for the first you know, Thanksgiving that we celebrated. That's a long time ago, right? It's been that long since God has spoken to his people. No prophets, no angels, nothing. And that's where Luke opens up. When it says in the days of Herod, these are dark days. The silence from heaven is deafening. Will the Messiah ever come? Will God keep the covenant that he made his people? Has God been working in the darkness and what Luke records for us here in this moment after 400 years of silence, radio silence from heaven is broken and God answers a big yes to all of those questions. And what we see here is we see God not coming first after 400 years to someone high and mighty in a high and mighty place. You know, the camera goes from Herod the Great from his palace and it sweeps and dives down into the ordinary everyday life of Israel and who comes into frame is an ordinary couple named Zechariah and Elizabeth. So we're going to see this story in four scenes. And the first one is this. We see an unassuming couple that is chosen. An unassuming, ordinary couple who is chosen. Look at verse 5. The rest of that verse. It says, uh, There was a priest named Zechariah, the division of Abijah. And he had, had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. 
All right, so after 400 years of silence, we're introduced to this ordinary priest named Zechariah. The Levites were the priestly tribe in Israel, and within the family of the Levites, you had the family of Aaron, and they were a priestly family. They were kind of the varsity level priestly family. They were the elite, and Zechariah's wife Elizabeth was from that family. So you had Zechariah grew up in a ministry family. Elizabeth grew up in a ministry family. Both of them, granddads, great-granddads, uncles, dads, everybody served as priests. They grew up in that their entire life. Two people from ministry families marrying each other. I can relate with that. All right. My wife is from a ministry family. My dad, I'm from a ministry family as well, but make sure you understand this is a ordinary couple. Think backwoods country ministry, church ministry couple. All right. Think about that in your mind. Zechariah was a very common name. All right. He's one of thousands of priests who were serving in Israel. They were ordinary. And the Bible says, though, they were ordinary, but at the same time, verse 6 says they were righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. They were a godly couple. Luke wants you to know they had personal integrity, not sinless perfection. We're about to see Zechariah fall flat on his face. But God wants us to know through his word and through Luke's letter right here that they were godly, that they truly loved God. You need to realize that. You need to know that it is possible for you to live a life that pleases God. Now, some of us are very in tune with the doctrine of depravity, and we believe that here. We believe we're born wicked-hearted sinners, worms of the earth. Listen, Merry Christmas. There you go. Welcome to Schindler Drive. We believe that with all of our hearts. At the same time, we believe that the Holy Spirit can save us, robe us in the righteousness of Christ. God sees us through the shed blood of Jesus that is pure, that is perfect, and delights when he looks at us through the perfect work of Jesus Christ, and that we can move from there empowered by the Spirit to live a life that pleases him. We need to know that you can live. It's possible for you to live an obedient life as you lean on God's spirit. He can do that work. And he had done that work in this couple. But we're also reminded that uh, the truth that God, a godly life doesn't always mean an easy life. They dealt with a great heartache. Verse seven says they were godly, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They desperately wanted a child. They desperately wanted a baby in their hearts. They desperately desired that, and they asked God for that. They said, God, give us a baby over and over and over again. Here they are old with no kids. Many of you have walked that heart-wrenching road of infertility. Maybe there were mornings where Elizabeth woke up, and she was nauseous, and she thought, this is it. Only to find her hopes dashed. To add to The layer of heartache that we experienced today, back then, you had to deal with the shame of living in that community. See, in those days, your kids not only brought joy to your life, but kids bring gladness and joy to our life. Not always, but most of the time, right? But in those days, they also brought a level of security. Your kids were your retirement plan. Right, the more kids in those days meant more hands on the farm. It meant more wealth. It meant you're going to be taken care of when you get older. Think about that. More kids then meant more wealth. That's changed, right? feels like the more kids you have now, the more broke you feel. But a large family in that culture was considered a picture of the blessings of God on your home. And times have changed, right? You walk into Walmart in Palestine with nine kids. People rush you and go, wow, this is amazing. God bless you. Look at you. Today you walk into Walmart with nine kids. People run from you, right? The homeschool family is taking over Walmart. I'm kidding. I like homeschool. Don't email me. Homeschool families are awesome. But not only are they heartbroken, but because they aren't experienced just the joy of having a child, again, their hopes for their future are dashed. There's heartache there. 
Uh, They have to deal with the judgmental stares of people in their community who in those days would look at you and they uh, were under the impression that if you didn't have kids, it meant that it was connected to some kind of sin in your life, which certainly wasn't the case here. Some of you need to know that today, that in the Bible we see Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Elizabeth, women of faith who pleased God with their life and had to walk that hard road of infertility. So know that this morning, your struggle that you're dealing with in your life right now is not a certain mark of God's displeasure in your life. You can love God. You can live a life of integrity for him, a life that pleases him. And yet there'd be part of his wise and perfect plan for your life that involves pain, that involves heartache. And at times it's just difficult to understand. Challenging to connect the dots and understand what he's doing. The one thing that they wanted, they didn't have. What is that in your life this morning? A grief that feels at times impossible to bear. Maybe it has to do with the pain of infertility. Maybe you desperately want to get married and you see other people around you experiencing the joy of that and you haven't experienced it yet in your life. Maybe you have kids and you, you want, maybe kids that are growing up and, and you wonder, why are they acting this way? God, what did we do wrong? Maybe you're wondering, why can't we seem to get to a place where we experience financial peace in our life? Maybe it's a relationship in your life that you think is impossible to mend. Maybe whatever it is, maybe it's some kind of problem that you deeply doubt could ever get fixed, feels impossible. What is that for you? Know this, here's a real couple in real life 2,000 years ago who lived that kind of experience, just like we do. An unassuming couple, ordinary, with problems just like ours. And their story helps us connect the dots. Because what we're going to see as we move through this story is we're going to see the God that they're serving that they thought was not listening was listening. We're going to see that the God that at times they wondered if he was working in the darkness was working. They were going to see that the God that they doubted his timing was perfect with his timing. And if you're a born again believer, the God at work in this story, if you are in Christ, is the God at work in your story. So whatever heartache you're carrying in your life this morning. Would you keep it in view for a few moments? Keep it in view. So an unassuming couple is chosen. Secondly, an unexpected messenger, an unexpected angel is appearing. Look at verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, if you've read this story before, you may not have picked this up. This is a big day in the life of Zechariah, an ordinary priest. All right. See, there were around 18,000 priests like Zechariah in Israel. He's one of 18,000. Those 18,000 priests were divided up in 24 troops. He's in the troop you could call tribe called Abijah. All right. And your troop was responsible to come in uh, once uh, twice actually a year to tend to the duties of the temple. So uh, Zechariah is part of the Abijah division and it's their turn. So it's, your, it's their turn to come in and to tend to the, uh, the tasks of the temple. And there was one special task that if you're in that troop and you're on duty that you long to do, right? And it was to go in and it was, it was to offer incense for either the evening or the morning sacrifice. And they would cast lots and they would choose to see whoever got to experience that privilege, right? It says he chosen by lot there. That's not like a man named Lot. That means they rolled dice to figure out who would get to uh, take on this privilege. And so in Abijah and that uh, troop, there's a thousand priests around. 
So you do the math. It's a once in a lifetime opportunity and Zechariah gets picked, gets called up to the big leagues. This is an honor. Once in a lifetime. His family's there. People are there. They're happy for him. He's excited. It's a great day. And I want to walk you through what it would have been like for Zechariah on this day as he got to offer uh, the, the incense. He, he's going to walk in. He offers a sacrifice at the brass altar. He goes to the brass laver and, and cleanses there and enters the holy place, not the holy of holies. Only the, the high priest would enter there once a year. He goes into the holy place. And this is a special moment. This is as close as you can get at this moment for somebody like Zechariah to the presence of God. He walks over to the altar of incense where he begins to burn incense and and the smoke's building up. According to Exodus, the incense was made of cinnamon. All right. Probably smells like some of your houses right now. Right. My house for December is going to smell like cinnamon and spices and all kinds of stuff. with The candles burning. But it was a pleasant smell. And the priest who was offering that incense and those who could smell it as the smell was billowing out, what it was meant to do was meant to be symbolic of the prayers that that priest was praying on behalf of the nation going up and being heard by God. So Zechariah's in this temple. He's lighting the incense. He's bowing down, praying on behalf of the nation. He's confessing his sins. He's confessing the sins of the nation. And he's literally asking, praying prayers, asking God to remember his promises for the consolation of Israel. To remember his promises to bring a Messiah. And twice a day, week after week, month after month, decade after decade, for 500 years in this particular temple, these prayers were offered up with no answer. Day after day, week after week, until this moment right here. Can you imagine this being your quiet time? This is a pretty epic quiet time Zechariah's about to have. He's in the holy place, and look at verse 11. It says, and, they, and there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, what does he say? Do not be afraid. Can you imagine? All of a sudden he's, he's lighting the incense. He looks up and there's an angel. Usually if that happens at a big angel's in front of you, I mean, it's a trippy moment, right? You're like somebody put something in the incense. Something's off here. This is real life. This is happening. 400 years of silence, and then boom, the supernatural is breaking into the natural. And it says he's scared. And you, so you say, well, why is he scared? Well, here's the problem. We have this kind of idea of angels that's, that, we've, that we've kind of morphed uh, that's, we've kind of morphed into in our minds of these little chubby, kind of snuggly little angel, baby angels with diapers on and wings and rouge on their cheeks. That's not a biblical depiction of an angel. When you look in God's word, these are fierce supernatural, angelic beings whose presence, it's beyond intimidating and overwhelming to be in the presence of one of these beings. And you say, well, how do you know that for sure? Well, the dead giveaway is every time pretty much a, an angel shows up in scripture, they have to immediately tell the people that they're showing up to, don't die, don't die, do not be afraid. I'm not coming here to harm you. And so he does that with Zechariah. Don't die, Zechariah. Fear not. I'm not here to hurt you. Here's the deal. You for 400 years, priests like you, have been lifting up prayers like you've just prayed. And there's been nothing but silence, but I want you to know we're back. Like heaven is reestablishing communication. We've been radio silent. We're dialing back in. God has heard every prayer that has been prayed. And I'm about to do something significant. And as hard as it is for you to believe, your family is going to play a part in that plan. Look at verse 13. 
Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord, their God. The angel is saying, your prayers have been heard. And here's an answer to that prayer. Now, many have debated about what prayer is being answered right here. What prayer is the angel? What prayer is God answering here? Is he praying the specific prayer that they prayed for all these years that they would have a child? They give birth to a child? Or is God answering the prayer that Zechariah and other priests would have been praying for the coming Messiah, that he was just praying? All right, there's debate. Some in this camp, some in this camp. Here's my answer to that. Yes. Yes. All the above. God is answering the prayers of a nation that a Messiah would come and at the same time giving this ordinary priest and wife a baby to say he's going to be part of this plan. In other words, in other words, God's answering Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayers in ways that are going to exceed their expectations. And the angel begins to lay out some details and instruction about this special baby. Explains that he's going to be great in the eyes of God. He pulls in that Malachi 3 and 4 prophecy showing Zechariah that your son's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. That Israel, that the world has been waiting for. Explains to Zechariah, hey, your son's going to grow up and he's going to preach the gospel. He's going to grow up and he's going to call this nation to repent of their sins and turn to the Lord. So that when Jesus starts his earthly ministry, people will recognize him and begin to follow him. When he begins to preach and he begins to make his way to the cross. Zechariah then gets instruction on how to raise him. He tells him, make sure that he doesn't. So he's giving him instruction on how to raise his son. Here's Zechariah, biggest day of his life, Super Bowl. He's in there thinking about the burning incense. He's thinking about the exciting moment. He, the, the, it's the climactic moment is when he gets to walk outside of the temple at the end of all this and raise his hands. They're going to be down kneeling, waiting for him, and he's going to lead them in the ironic blessing. That was on his mind, and now he's got an angel in here telling him how he's going to raise his family. Tell him how he's going to raise his son. He said he's not going to drink wine. He doesn't need to drink strong drink. What that's giving, I believe that's showing us that he's going to take a Nazarite vow. As we read in other parts of scripture, people take and saying that they're not going to be influenced by anything else but God. And he says he'll be filled with the spirit in utero. He'll be filled with the spirit in the womb of his mother. And I should communicate something to us right now about the value of unborn life. God is working in the heart and in the life of an unborn child right here. It says the baby will be filled with the spirit. God doesn't fill things with the spirit. God doesn't fill collection of tissues with the spirit. You know what that tells us? That tells us that this is a person. This child, this child that we'd be born in this ordinary couple is a person made in the image of God with intrinsic value. That is no insignificant detail in the days in which we live. Should also remind us too that it's never too early to pray for our children, even before they come into the world. Even when they're in the womb of their mother, it's good, it's healthy to pray over our babies before they're born. To pray that even then, God, we don't believe they can come to faith necessarily until they come to an age where they can understand and throw the full weight of their faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, understanding the crushing weight of judgment that's coming at them because of their sin. But we do believe based on this story and stories like this that God can begin to work in the hearts of children before that moment happens. And he uses the faithful prayers of parents. Praying over our babies, praying over 
our kids. He tells him how to bring him up. What is he basically? He's basically saying this. This is going to be a special child with a very special mission. And it dawned on me this week, there's a connection between these parents and ourselves. Never thought about this before. God's got a very special mission for John. Does he not have a very special mission for our kids? And the charge that they're given to raise this son up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord is a charge for us to take seriously the call, Christian men, Christian women, parents, to raise our kids up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, that they, like John the Baptist, might be seen as great in the sight of God. What made him great? He wasn't great in the sight of the Roman Empire. He wasn't great in the sight of the world. The world thought he was weird. He's out there preaching with cricket legs in his teeth. Camel hair is... His clothes, probably had a big afro and a big beard, a weird looking dude, hung out in the woods by himself a lot. He was strange, according to what made him great. Here's what made him great. His greatness was tied up in how tied up he was in Jesus. And we're called to raise up kids who understand their greatness is tied up and how much they're tied up in Jesus, how much they live for his glory. Do you know that God doesn't give you your kids for you? He gives, you, he, he gives you your kids for his glory. That's why we pray over them. That's why we invest in them. That's why we keep giving them back to God. That's a word for every parent here. I don't care how old your kids are. When's the last time you said, Lord, they're yours? They're not mine. I commit them to you. Once again, no strings attached. They're yours. You change their heart. You work in their life. You do what I can't do. You got a child straying this morning? You got a child going in a different direction from the direction that you raised them to walk. Keep giving them to the Lord. Keep praying. Keep investing. Never give up. It's a lot of exciting stuff for Zechariah to take in. Right? And surely he'd be connecting the dots, right? I mean, this is, this is a bigger moment than lighting incense. I mean, this is exciting. Surely he'd be connecting. Oh, Malachi, of course, Isaiah, us. Oh, wow, this is crazy. Of course he would have worked this way. All these years of silence, thinking back, he was an expert in understanding the Old Testament. He would have been familiar. Surely he's thinking about stories like, oh, of course, Hannah was just like Elizabeth. She was barren and she was given Samuel in a miraculous birth. And he became the forerunner for another king who pointed to this king. Of course, he would have come to an ordinary barren couple to bring into the world the forerunner for the Messiah. You would think he's connecting the dots. You would think this is the moment he leaps with joy and sings, our God is an awesome God and runs out and said, yo, uh, just listen to this before I give the ironic blessing. This is amazing news that I was just getting. No, how does he respond? This angel delivers this amazing news. And how does he respond? He looks at the angel like this. No, that's impossible. There's no way that can be true. We see an unassuming couple chosen, an unexpected angel appearing, and now an undesirable response is revealing. Revealing much about this ordinary priest's heart and revealing much about our heart. Zechariah is like, Mr. Angel, see, here's the problem. There's like the season that you have kids and you don't have kids, and that like biological window has closed for this couple, so you may have the wrong couple right here. I'm not sure you got the right memo. Because look at us, and I love this. If you look at, I think it's verse 18. I love this. This is a, he has a wise husband moment right here. Husbands, take note of this. The, the, the only wise men in the Christmas stories aren't, aren't just those in Matthew chapter two. He has a wise moment right here. Listen to what he says. He says, that can't happen. What does he say? Because I am old and my wife is advanced in years. <laughs> Smart man. 
Basically, he's, he's saying this. He's saying, if what you're saying is true, I need you to give me a sign. A sign? Like, really? That's what you're going to say to an angel who just, who just supernaturally broke through the natural? It's a kind of glory light shining on bouncing over the walls inside the temple. You're trying to shield your, your eyes from the light. He just broke in and about killed you? And Zechariah, you think the next best move is to go, hey, uh, supernatural angel, can you like show me another magic trick just to make sure that, I, okay, just make me extra sure that what you said is going to happen is going to happen? This is not walking by faith. This is not trusting in God's word. Listen, this is not living with an expectation that God can move in miraculous ways and do the impossible. He's caught. Notice that. He's caught in a place that so many of us, a crowd like this, so often so many of us can get caught. We're in the right place. We have the right knowledge, but we have a heart void of faith and belief and expectation and trust in a God of the the possible. A God of the possible. A God who does miraculous things. A God who moves in ways that seem impossible, but makes them possible. Does that describe where you're at this morning? Do you believe in the God of the possible? No matter what you're going through? No matter what your heartache is, do you believe that there's a God whose timing's perfect? Do you believe that there's a God who's in control? And then do you believe that there's a God who can break through and do miracles? Or do you have doubt in your heart about something? Listen, that is not a place God wants us to stay. You say, how can I, how can I be sure? Well, look how mad the angel gets. Some righteous indignation right here. What does he say? How does he respond? He says, he hears this doubt and he says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was here to bring you good news. It makes me wonder right here, a little conjecture, but I wonder if Zechariah does begin to connect some dots. He's basically, do you know who I am? I am Gabriel. As if to say, the last time I showed up like this, was several hundred years ago to a guy named Daniel, and I helped him decode a vision in Daniel chapter 2. And you know what decoding that vision communicated to Daniel? That I'm sending an anointed one to atone for the sins of the world. And here I am to tell you that it's happening. Because you want to argue, you want a sign, here's your sign. And he takes out a heavenly remote control and just mutes his mouth. Tim Keller says this, he, he says, some doubt, because not all doubt is bad. I've heard it said that a doubt is a foot poised to, lifted and poised to move forward or back. Some doubt, Tim Keller says, seeks answers. Some da- doubt is a defense against the possibility of answers. Think about that. He says, some doubt seeks answers. There's good kinds of doubt. We'll look at an example of that next week. Some doubt, though, is a defense against the possibility of answers. Zechariah's is the latter kind of doubt. So God puts him in a massive timeout, says, you just sit to the side for nine months, go to your room for nine months, and you think about what you've done. For nine months, he can't talk and possibly can't hear either. If you go down and read verse 62, you can read that and draw a conclusion for yourself. And this is a scary, this is a scary story in many ways. You know why this is a scary story? Because if this is possible for a priest, carefully walking, meticulously walking through the right motions, Having seasons of living, as we read at the beginning, of living a life pleasing to the Lord. Praying daily that the Messiah would come. If it's possible for a priest like this to doubt, if it's possible for a priest like this to get caught without expectation for God to move, then it's possible for any of us. 
You're asking maybe this morning, well, how can I strengthen my faith? How, how, can I, how can I diminish the doubts that I have in my heart when they do arrive? How can I live more with an expectation for God to move and to do the impossible in my life? What can help me when I hesitate to move forward in faith and to trust him and to follow him wherever he leads, even if it means losing my life as we see John the Baptist doing, losing his head because he wouldn't shut up about Jesus? Where do I find the strength? Where do I find doubt diminishing? How can I move forward with bold faith? Where does bold faith come from? Is that not a question that if we're honest, all of us would ask today? There's a long list of things that I could give you, but I believe one big one is this. You ready? If you're truly a believer, it's about having a heart that dwells on and is convinced of the goodness of God. The faithfulness and never stopping, promise-keeping, covenantal love that God has for his children. Oh, I wish I could convince you how much God loves you in Christ Jesus. I wish I could convince you if you are in Christ Jesus, when God says you are his beloved, it is meant, listen, you are not just loved. You are greatly loved by God in Christ Jesus. Being convinced of that is what gives you the ability to surrender fully to him. Believing in his goodness and his love for you and his faithfulness and his promise keeping is what gives you the ability to pray big, bold prayers, to trust him to do the impossible. Even when humanly speaking, it makes zero sense. And even when it inconveniences you in your life, trusting that he's good, trusting that he's faithful, trusting that he has good plans for his kids that are always for your good and always for his glory. Bold faith is a product of being convinced of those things. It's being convinced that his love for you is deeper and wider than your mind, your heart could ever begin to fathom. And his promise keeping and his covenant keeping, is it not, is it not what's ultimately being displayed in the Christmas story? Is this not where it's ultimately, that the crescendo of his faithfulness to his children is shown? And this baby born in this cradle, but doesn't stay in a cradle, but goes to a cross. He's coming and he's moving and he will not stop moving until this Jesus that this forerunner is going to point people to is on that cross dying in the place of sinners. And that plan's beginning with John the Baptist's birth. It's as if God's setting Zechariah to the side and saying, I got a promise to keep. Listen, your uncertainty ain't going to thwart my plans. So you sit to the side, I'm going to keep moving forward, and I'll bring you back on board in a moment. And that brings us to our final point this morning. We see an unfailing promise is unfolding. An unfailing promise is unfolding. So Zechariah leaves the temple. By the way, did you forget about the people outside waiting for him? Right? He's been in there a while. That group's outside waiting for him. It was his big day. They're waiting for him to come out and to lead them in the ironic blessing. It's going to be his big moment. And they've been out there praying for him this entire time. And the guys probably whispering to each other, where's the old priest at? It does not take that long to burn incense in the temple. Like, I hope he didn't get zapped in there. Look at verse 21. And the people were waiting for Zechariah and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. Can you picture him? Everybody's waiting. They're waiting for him to come out and give the blessing. He comes out and they're like, something's wrong with him. He's doing sign language. 
Like he can't talk. He's like, he's trying to sign to them what happened. What's he saying? What's he? I don't, I don't, I mean, football. No. He's hungry. No. They don't understand exactly what he's saying, but they know something big has happened in the temple. Verse 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me, to take away my reproach among people. There it is. There's the promise being kept. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. The promise that God gave Zechariah in that temple that came from heaven, he's keeping. Because he's a faithful promise-keeping God. The promise unfolded exactly the way that it would. And Zechariah's got to sit in silence and watch the faithfulness and love of God on display. And at the same time, watch his wife have her at Jesus party the entire time. She's worshiping, man. She's making blankets. She's reading maternity books, right? So she's praising God for those five months. She's setting up the nursery, right? She's praising. She's rejoicing. She's got a mute husband for nine months, maybe. I'm not sure. One arguments for nine months straight. She's praising God for, hey, not just keeping his promise in the sense that he removed as she prayed her reproach in that society, but the promise of fulfilling the prophecies of old that God would come and remove the shame and reproach of sinners who trust in him. And for five months, Zechariah's trapped in that house with her, watching her worship God, thanking on the goodness of God course he was working in the darkness lord forgive me for doubting of course you would do what you you said you would do of course your plan is so much higher and better than my plan and the dots at christmas begin to connect in his heart and you say well how do you know that will you follow his story his tongue's going to be set loose after nine months when john's born and this pent-up praise comes bursting out And he writes a song in response to all this. The dots are connecting. But listen, again, we don't want to see the dots connecting and the characters of the first Christmas story and seeing God at work in their life and miss out on opportunities for this same God to work in our life. Would you allow the Spirit to connect some dots in your heart this morning? Number one question. Here's the first question as we connect the dots. First of all, do you have a relationship with this God? Do you have a relationship with this God? See, the angel Gabriel is soon going to go and appear to a Hebrew girl named Mary who's going to give birth to the Son of God, who's going to grow up to live a perfect life. And one day, John the Baptist is going to be preaching, and he's going to see Jesus there coming in the midst of the crowd, and he's going to point at him in the middle of all these sacrifices and these lambs that have been slayed in this temple sacrifice system. And in the middle of all that, he's going to point at Jesus, and he's going to say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And three years later, this baby who will be born six months after John the Baptist, named Jesus, all these years later, is going to hang on a cross. And he's going to hang on that cross and bear your sins. He's not dying there just for you. He's dying there instead of you. You should have taken the punishment. And yet he dies there in the place of sinners who can't save themselves. And he's buried in a borrowed tomb. But he raises from the dead, proving that he is the son of God. And he's come and truly atoned for the sins of mankind. 
And if you're here this morning, admitting that you're a sinner, admitting that you don't have what it takes to fix your sin problem and throwing the full weight of your faith on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you can be saved. See, connecting the dots at Christmas for you means you need to understand that the Christ in the cradle has to be connected to the Christ on the cross. You say, well, I've connected those dots. So let, me ask you a, let me ask you a quick question that will lead into a final question. Stick with me. You say, well, those dots have connected. I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Let me ask you this. Do you truly believe that God is in control of your life? Now, a lot of us understand the theological word sovereignty. The problem is not a whole lot of us truly in our hearts, if we were to look in, live like we believe it. Do you believe that he is a good, loving Always on time, sovereign God. This story reminds us that God's in control, that his plans are perfect. You think Elizabeth and Zechariah were convinced of that at the end of this? So with that in place, here's the tension. With that in place, believing that God's sovereign, believing that he's in control, believing that in the darkness he's working, here's the tension. With that in place, are you believing that and obeying scripture by believing that and also obeying scripture by coming to him and praying for him to move in your life in impossible situations with a heart full of faith and expectation? That's the tension you got to live in. I believe you're fully in control. God, I believe your plan is perfect, but I believe you accomplish your sovereign plan by me lifting up heart of the heart of faith prayers with expectation that you'll move even in situations that feel impossible. Am I praying for the big God that I say I believe in? Am I praying to him with big prayers of big, bold faith? See, Zechariah had been praying these big prayers all of his life. And when the moment comes, it reveals he wasn't expecting an answer. May we never be a church that just comes here and sings songs and shakes hands and gives money and listens to a sermon like this and then maybe goes to Sunday school or small group and never really expects God to show up and to move in miraculous ways. I don't want to be a church like that. I want to be a church where God shows up. I want to be a church where God moves. I want to be a church where we're asking a great and powerful God to do great things in our midst, expecting him to do great things. All right, so now I'm turning it on you. Ready? What right now are you leaning on God for? I mean, in desperation, he's my only hope. I'm fully leaning on God for. Where are you expecting God to move in a mighty way in your life? When's the last time you asked God to do something tangible, something measurable? Where is it that God needs to move in your life in a big way this morning? Lena, is it an infertility issue? Oh, you just, you desperately want a child. And yet you stop praying big prayers of bold faith. Is it a son or a daughter who's far from God? Maybe you've experienced some kind of profound loss, maybe the loss of a loved one, and you just can't find peace in your heart. Maybe there's an area of sin, man, you just keep getting knocked down over and over and over. The victory just hasn't come yet. Maybe some of you have a loved one, and oh, your heart desires to see them come to church, and you know they wouldn't even darken the door of this church. Maybe your marriage feels beyond repair. 
Maybe you're single and you long to be married. I could keep making probing comments. I could keep asking questions. You allow God's spirit to show you where is it that God needs to move in your life. And I I long for you in a fresh way to take that to God and to give it to him again and to ask him to move in a big way. Don't take that back to your car this morning. Whatever it is, don't go back to your car without giving that to God and asking him to move. In a miraculous way. You know the Bible's very clear. It's a startling verse. You have not because you ask not. Ask and it will be given to you. The Bible tells us to live in attention that God's in complete control and to trust his, in his sovereignty and to trust that he's in full control. But at the same time live with a big expectation for him to move. Here. I just want to be frank and direct with you this morning. I think the reason we so often don't see him work is because we don't ask him to work. And the reason we don't ask him to work is because, frankly, we don't think and expect that he will work. Whatever it is, maybe you're sick. Maybe you long for a child. That's you, we'll pray for you. If you'd like us to pray for you, we'll pray for you. We want to be a church that doesn't push you down and out, but pulls you in and lifts you up because that's what Jesus does. We would pray for you just to ask us. I can't promise you that God will do it because I'm not God, but I can promise you that he has done it. I can't promise you that you're not the first person in the family of God to ever go through what you're going through. And that along the way, people have lifted up prayers of faith and God has moved in the exact type of situation that you're in. And I can promise you that he has moved and that he has answered prayers like you're praying. And I can promise you this, that no matter what happens, he'll give you the grace if you lean on him to carry you through whatever happens. Let's be a church that prays for God to do big things in big ways and expects answers. You know, when he answers the prayer, we're going to give him the credit for it. Not chalk it up to coincidence. We're going to point to him and say, we serve a God who doesn't just work in ancient texts and scriptures like the one we just read, who's alive and well and working in lives right now more than ever before. Let's pray.